name is Lieutenant Tiffany Walker again, and I'm with the Office of Secretary of Defense of Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating our call today. Today we are honored to have as our guest British Major General Phil Jones, Director of the Force Reintegration Cell for the International Security Assistance Force. He will discuss the state of Afghanistan peace and, re <coughs> and reintegration. Excuse me. According to Major General Jones, more than 500 Afghans have come forward during the past 60 days to join, which brings the total number of reintegration candidates to nearly 1,200 former fighters from 13 provinces. A note from our, our, for our bloggers on the call today. Please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question. Respect the General's time and keep your questions succinct and to the point. Now we'll take an opening statement from Major General Jones. Sir? Yeah, I'm here. Um, well, it's de delighted to be able to speak to you all um, this evening and take your questions or this morning U.S. time, I guess. Um, I'll only speak for two or three minutes and then hand back to you for questions. And um, So, reintegration. Um, let me start with a couple of anecdotes. Um, about five days ago, as I was in Badgis province in the northwest of Afghanistan. Um, it's a poor and pretty distant province with plenty of real problems, very few roads, real challenges with water, health, education, and so on. And also, over the past two or three years, it's had a really um, problematic, growing insurgency problem. Um, but over the past eight months or so, through a combination of really good low-level security work, ISAF and Afghan security forces working together, uh, over the whole range of counterinsurgency operations up there and some really excellent political outreach by the governor, we've had something like 400 armed men who have reintegrated over the past four months or so. Um, and as a result of all these efforts synchronized together, the security situation has changed out of all recognition, frankly. Problems, of course, still remain. Um, there's fighting in little pockets in parts of the province and security operations go on, but there have been some really big steps forward. So about five days ago, I was up there and we sat in Baggies with about 40 ex-insurgent commanders sitting in a room together discussing the challenges of peace, whereas six months ago we'd have been fighting. Um, it, was, it was one of those amazing, powerful moments. Just yesterday, another 83 former members of the Taliban reintegration of Lagman province in the east, and today, when I got back into my office, there was a note saying 17 have just come forward in Kunduz in the north. And these sort of events are beginning to happen all over Afghanistan, and so far, um, uh, our numbers have been rocketing up. And um, about a week ago, when we prepared the statement, it was about 12 or 1,300, and now we're up to about 1,700 former fighters formally reintegrating, formally joining the process. Um, with hundreds more across Afghanistan just going home, um, although that tends to be more anecdotal. Um, and those folks just decided to leave the fight quietly because they know they can under this emerging peace process. On top of this, we've got probably about another 40 to 45 groups in negotiation across the country. Um, and much of that activity, as I said, has emerged in the past three months. So the Afghan Peace and Reintegration Program is an Afghan civil peace process that's been in action for about 10 months now. Strategy document was signed off last July. And it, the strategy provides a programmatic support to these armed groups and, of course, their communities who wish to reintegrate, in other words, wish to rejoin Afghanistan. But it also supports the strategic political processes at the higher end. Um, at its highest level, um, it's run by the High Peace Council that works on national and international politics. And down at its lowest end, lowest end out in the districts and provinces, the peace process supports fighters and their communities rejoining the nation of Afghanistan with honor and with dignity providing they renounce violence, sever ties with international terrorist groups, and live under the Constitution. As I said, it's 10 months old, nascent, very firmly an Afghan process, which we and ISAF are committed to support, but it's Afghan-owned, Afghan-led, Afghan-delivered. Um, and I think that's probably enough from me uh, to get us started, and back to you. 
Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Tom Goring from Navy Cyberspace, NavyCS.com. Um, I'll go ahead and lead off. My question is, you sure. said that can't deliver. Uh, how do the insurgents actually find out about the program, and, and can we find an initial trust that the, the program will, will work for them? Over. Yeah, the, actually, one of the components of this that we built for the Afghans is a terrific database, and all these insurgents are interviewed uh, in detail, and their interviews are loaded onto the database. And so, so I can tell you from their own mouths that the, the way they hear about it most frequently is through radio, radio transmissions. The way they hear about it and are persuaded to come in is through local community networks, the elders, the ulema, local government actors, and the like. Um, we put quite a lot of effort, obviously, into you know the, the modern media communications and things like that, um, which raises awareness. But frankly, it's the traditional word-of-mouth communications that are the strong have the strongest impact on people. Over. Well, thanks, Tom, for your question. And I'm going to interrupt here just to make sure I have everybody that's on the line. I have Tom Goring who just asked a question. I have Dale Kissinger, uh, Spencer from Wired, and uh, who else joined us? I'm Brian Jordan, Military.com. Uh, this is Kevin Barron, Stars and Stripes. Mr. Jordan and Kevin. Okay. Uh, we'll follow that with a question for Mr. Kissinger. Uh, good morning, uh, or good evening, General. Uh, this is Dale Kissinger. Um, my question relates to uh, a roundtable conference we had with Lieutenant General Caldwell 10 days ago uh, concerning infiltrators and, and, and of course, the, the killing of NATO forces uh, with somebody in an Afghan uniform. Um, it, it's occurred quite frequently and, and horrifically, of course. Um, how does this program fit in? Do we do uh, checks on these folks before we uh, hand them an Afghan uniform? Do they are they integrated into the Afghan security forces? Um, no, no, they're not. Um, the reintegration does not reintegrate people directly into the Afghan security forces. If they go through the program and they come out the other end, having um, made all the declarations and the vetting has been um, completed, then they return to the status of normal Afghan uh, citizens, uh, which means there's nothing preventing them from being recruited in the normal ways into the Afghan security forces. But, you know, recruitment into the Afghan security forces requires a whole other layer of vetting, as you'd expect. Um, to enter the program, there's a basic level of vetting that takes place. And, you know, as I said at the start, it's an Afghan program. So what happens is the, these sort of groups, like, like the 17 or so that, that um, appeared in Conduce today, um, you know, quite often these low-level groups are not well known by the local authorities. Some of them are, but some of them aren't. Uh, and so the local authorities take stock. They spend a little bit of time trying to understand who they are, what they are, what their motivations are, apart from anything else to sift out whether they're bona fide insurgents or criminals or something like that. And also it's part of the process of working out what to do with them. Um, that vetting um, is, is pretty rudimentary, really. I mean, it's taking judgments. It's working out what information we have and what we don't. A uh, bit of collaboration with ISAF, but very much an Afghan lead. Over. Okay, thank you very much. All right, we'll follow that up with a question from Spencer. Hi, General Jones. Uh, good to talk to you again. Uh, when last we spoke in December, uh, you had said that uh, roughly 800 uh, former insurgents had come in from the cold. Um, I just wanted to make sure I heard you right that uh, now you're up to about 1,700 that have started that process. Yeah, what we did, Spencer, was we, we reviewed that 800. Um, there are a couple of groups that are reintegrated at the start where, um, right at the start, that sort of kind of stalled. 
uh, and didn't go anywhere in terms of reintegration. So we trimmed it down. So on the 11th of February, we went back down to about 641 of what we considered to be bona fide insurgents who had reintegrated. Uh, and since the, I think about the 11th of February, um, which was when we were at that sort of low stat, um, the, the flow has picked up again, particularly in the last month or so. So right now, um, we've just had a, a couple of groups um, demobilizing in Lagman and up in the north. We'll be just about plus or minus 1,700, but until all the case files are in and on the database, I couldn't give you an absolute to the number figure right now, but about 1,700 formally enrolled. Um, uh, follow up on that really on. quickly. Um, yeah. What do you attribute uh, that, that recent uptick to? Have you seen any effect uh, from the death of bin Laden? And what are you now setting as your baseline for how many fighters the Taliban commanded? Uh, estimates of, you know, previously run, I think, with the last week, we spoke around 30,000. Uh, what are you viewing uh, their end strength as, roughly? Okay. Um, well, let's do the first one, then. What are we attributed to? Um, well, the military operations obviously has a, have a huge impact on this in both senses. Firstly, they place a great deal of pressure on these insurgent groups. Their freedom to act, their freedom to move, their, you know, their ability to stay on the battlefield is severely constrained. And, and that ramp up of the security effort, the expansion of security bubbles, the pressure on the leaders through the um, special forces and all of that sort of stuff has continued to accelerate, particularly on the Afghan side, through the winter. And now we're at a point, and it's quite interesting, really, because we've always wondered, you know, what is going to be the trigger for more people coming in? And, you know, strategically, the numbers still remain modest, so let's not get carried away. Um, but right now, as, you know, the, the traditional fighting season starts ramping up, a couple of weeks ago, Mullah Omar announced the spring offensive and that sort of stuff, we've seen an uptick of people who, you know, having had a quiet winter, just saying, no, I don't want to go back. don't want to get back to the fight. This program is you know, has given me sufficient release valve, if you like, to step out of the fight and, and step into a peace program. A lot of the communities, a lot of the elders now are putting a lot of pressure on these local fighting groups. Um, so that, that's the answer to your first question. The, the point about Osama bin Laden, I think it's too early to tell. Um, all the reflections we get at the moment is that everyone on all sides are, are celebrating the demise of Osama bin Laden. Um, but whether it's going to precipitate um, you know, local, low-level, or strategic changes in the dialogue and the sense of trajectory is, is yet to be seen. At the moment, we're seeing a lot of chatter, uh, and you know, frankly, from every direction, it's potentially positive. Um, but uh, you know, positive is is great. But what we need to see is real effect, and it's too early to tell. And I'm sorry, Spencer, I missed your last question. How large is the Taliban? What are your estimates right now? Oh, yeah. okay. So we can compare what, uh, you know, how many are coming into this program versus how many we estimate they have. Yeah, that's right. Now, when we last discussed, what, what I said to you was that the program itself was, in, in a programmatic sense and for budgetary reasons, um, was estimated at 40,000 people over five years. Um, and that sort of, that's a combination of fighters and communities and all sorts of things um, to, in order to set a budget against it. ISAF um, estimate, I believe at the moment, is about 20 to 25,000 um, fighters of various different categories, um, both full-time and part-time involved in insurgency. Um, so really, if we're looking at you know, an insurgency of somewhere between 20 and 25, and these, of course, are sweeping generalizations and broad right. estimates. Um, Given, given that a lot of people are already, you know, Governor Mangle in Helmand was talking two or three days ago about the numbers who in Helmand are just going home quietly. Um, you know, it's hard. You know, I, I sort of kind of set a private 
my own sort of view of this, which is if, if you're starting to get twelve to 15,000 people running through a program like this, um, then you're, you're starting to have a really sort of strategic impact on stabilization in Afghanistan. But again, that, you know, that's my judgment. Others may you know, beg to differ. So you're an order of magnitude below where you think uh, you would need to get a real strategic thing. I'm, I'm sorry, you broke up then. So you're an order of magnitude below where you think you would need to be in terms of numbers of fighters going through the program that would augur a strategic change. Yeah, I think so. You know, we, we have to stay realistic here. And, you know, we're, we are um, infused by the number of groups that are coming to the program and the way the program is built is now speeded up and is able to cope with them across and also the spread across the country. You know, it's no longer just in the north and the and the West, we've got groups in Kandahar and Helmand and Zabul and places in the South. Um, but, you know, strategically, you know, it's yet to really bite into the insurgency as a, as a program itself. But, you know, re recognize the fact that it's all part of a sort of systematic and comprehensive approach to dealing with the solutions here. Um, so we'll see how it goes over the next two or three months. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. Mr. Jordan? Hi. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is, are the names of the people who come in through this program put on a database that's available not only to the Afghan security forces recruiters, but to the U.S. forces or other allied forces who may inherit them uh, in their programs as assigned to them? Yeah, they, what happens is when the, when the fighters enroll into the program, the, 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 the sort of 1,700 or so who have come so far, all of them have been biometrically registered, so photographs, thumbprints, iris scans, that sort of thing. They all get interviewed in detail um, to really try to get a bead on them. You know, where are you from? What's your father's name? What's your village? And all that sort of stuff, all the detail you need for these, these distant areas. Um, plus a whole lot of other information that's fed onto um, an Afghan database. Um, the, 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 the sovereign ownership of the data on it is Afghan. Um, now, there are memoranda of understanding that have been worked between the Afghans and our own security forces, obviously, um, such that this sort of biometric data can be shared and is available to people um, for security forces and uh, police forces and the like. Is it required that if, if, if uh, somebody comes into the program and six, after successfully completing it in a, in a few months, they join Afghan security forces, they pass they're vetted by them, everything is fine, and then a few months down the road, they're assigned to an American unit for one reason or another. Is it required that that information pass along to the Americans? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the information is passed, and frankly, at this stage, um, the, the, there's, there are, I, I, you know, it's hard to tell because I haven't picked up on, it, on any at the moment that have made that transition into either security forces or working for, um, uh, working closely with U.S. forces and that sort of thing. Um, I, I suspect that the, the, the traffic in that sort of domain would probably be further on down the line. Um, most of these people are very distant rural communities uh, and the likes, and those that aren't, you know, are pretty well known in the intelligence circles. Those people who are slightly up, higher up the chain of command, more significant characters coming in. You know, are very well known, and that sort of connection isn't there. But the, all of that data um, is available, and obviously, in the current context, people are, you know, are extremely cautious Thank and you. take all the necessary measures. Thank you. All right, thanks, Mr. Jordan and Kevin. Hi, thanks. This is uh, Kevin Bear from Stars and Stripes. Uh, my, my question is: um, Are uh, on high-value targets, I'm hearing a little bit more recently about uh, more focus on some of those guys. 
are there any signs of, of any commander level type of cooperation with the program or are these all low level foot soldiers you, you kind of just mentioned this a bit but uh, you know have you had any commanders leading their fighters on mass and group to join them to lay down arms or is this one off uh, kind of uh, reception uh, almost all of these groups, first of all, are low-level groups. Um, almost all of them. Not all of them. Um, there are some slightly more sophisticated people who are coming in. Um, but the vast bulk of um, the folks we've got in the program so far are, first of all, coming in in groups. And the groups are anything between, you know, the smallest would be, probably be a commander plus five. The largest would be, you know, a group of 200 with a, with a commander and then a series of sub-commanders. The, um, it's, you know, it's quite interesting that... Um, reflecting back on the on the, the sort of size and scale of the groups that are coming in, the average tends to be a you know a village commander plus fifteen or so, fifteen or twenty people, um, and that tends to tends to be the norm. So the vast bulk are these sort of low-level groups that are either coming in, in in sort of single groups or in blobs of groups from communities and districts that have decided you know enough's enough. We want to realign ourselves with the government. We want to come in. Um, you know, a couple of the groups in Kandahar. Uh, have had um, you know more sophisticated leaders um, that have come in that have caused quite a ripple around the place, um, but you're not talking about what we would call strategic leaders at this stage. You're not talking about people popping up who have spent the last ten years in Keta and Karachi or something like that uh, at this stage yet. There was always a sense that um, first of all the program was aimed really at this reintegration level, at the sort of the in-country insurgents. Um, who operate in and around their communities, which is a vast bulk of them. And that only when the program really started to travel and gains authenticity and everything else will you start to see um, the more senior leadership starting to come in. And, and indeed, you know, the, um, you know there's, there's a lot of talk in the media about, um, you know, peace talks, more strategic peace talks. And of course, you know, we'll, we'll wait to see if anything emerges on that level. Thank you. Just to follow, can you? I don't. I'm unfamiliar with the that large group. You said you had one large group of 200 people at once. Yeah, no, we've had a, we had a couple of those. There was a there was a large group that came in in Bad Geese, for example, in amongst the sort of 400 or they got there. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, I was I was with the governor a couple of days ago, and he just told me that another group of 200 is about to come out of one of the districts up there. Um, and so in, in some of these areas, you've had these larger groups, which, which tends to indicate either a, you know, a sub-tribe or a group of villages or an area where the elders have got together and said, you know, enough, let's, let's go, let's bring all our fighters in. Um, in other areas, you've had a similar sort of thing going on, but the groups have come in in drips, you know, a group of 10, then a couple of groups of 10, then a group of 40, and over time you end up. And this has happened in some of the provinces of the north. And what was that group that, where, uh, sorry again, where's that most recent group you said? Well, there's the, the group that's just been flagged up as coming in today is about 17, and that's up in Kunduz, up in the north. Um, the other group I mentioned, the large group that the governor told me about, um, that we've yet to see, um, you know, verified, uh, was in Badgis, up in the northwest. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you, sir. We'll have an, we have time for another go-round with Mr. Goring. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, real quick, uh, the 1,700 uh, personnel are Afghan nationals. I assume they were uh, turned themselves in. Were they, in fact, all Afghan nationals, or were there other countries involved? Over. Yeah, they're all Afghan nationals. The, the, the program is very clear that it is for Afghans to reintegrate into back into Afghanistan. Um, for, foreign nationals cannot enter this program. If foreign nationals want to come uh, and reintegrate, they can they can bring themselves in, and uh, people will try and take measures to repatriate them. But they can't be reintegrated in Afghanistan. All right, Dale? 
Uh, yes, sir. Um, of course, I would like to know if the royal wedding had any impact on the fighting environment in Afghanistan. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I was in Kandahar at the time. It didn't have any impact on my tempo of operations, I can tell you. <laughs> um, really, I would like to know, is the environment in Afghan changing? Are people are coming in. Are we seeing a change in the total picture? Um, you know, you have to be cautious in Afghanistan. You know, this is my fourth tour out here um, from Infantry Battalion Commander upwards, and it's... Um, and, you know, Afghanistan has a has a propensity to bite you in the leg if you make assumptions. Um, but I, I tell you, I'm, you know, it's an extraordinary period to be out here because there's a lot that's changing. And um, as General Petraeus says, that we've got to brace ourselves for a, a you know, tough fighting season again again this year. And the, 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 the insurgents, the Taliban leadership, um, uh, you know, are not going to go out of this without a fight. And they will try and regain some of the territory they've lost and they'll try and outflank us in some of the areas where they think we're not watching. And, you know, we've still already seen some um, pretty unpleasant urban terrorism. Um, but, you know, in, in the game that I work in, when you're out dealing with the governors and the elders and the communities, you, you've got to say that the conversation is changing. There's a sense that, um, you know, the security gains are sufficiently solid for people to have confidence in a different future. And there's a, as, as one elder said to me in Kandahar a couple of weeks back, that, um, the security gains have given the people in the villages the confidence to speak out against violence, against the Talibs. Um, and, you know, that, and I wouldn't want to say that that is pervasive across Afghanistan. Um, but, you know, there is a sense that there's a lot that's changed. It's going to be a fight to keep that change in place. Um, we're, we're ready for it. Um, the pressure on the Talibs is, is going up, not down. Uh, and people sense it. So, you know, I would say that, you know, this is, and, you know, across the north, you know, this time last year when I was coming back to Afghanistan, there was a real sense that the Talibs were expanding across the north, around Kondus and all the provinces of the north. It was a real concern across all the media and the blogs in Afghanistan. Um, and it's, you know, there's been a complete reversal up there at the moment. Now, those gains have got to be fought for and got to be sustained, but, and I don't mean to ramble on forever, but, um, you know, my, my sense is, yeah, I mean, there's, let's, let's not kid ourselves. You know, we're still in a fight. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, these significant gains that have been made in the autumn and the winter are real, they're tangible. Um, we've got to turn them into something that has endurance. Um, it's given people sufficient hope to start to believe in things like the peace and reintegration program, even though it's at its early stages. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Oh, thank you very much, sir. Thank you. And Spencer, are you still on the line? Okay, I think we've lost Spencer. Mr. Jordan? Hi, yes, still here. Um, do you know when these folks who come in are interviewed and uh, information garnered, any sense that these 1,700 so far, who you say are mostly uh, low-level fighters, have, have had any direct contact with um, the, I guess, shrinking numbers of al-Qaeda over there or, or, or not? Um, no, the, the general sense we have is that um, the Al-Qaeda presence is pretty small, first off. Uh, sec secondly, you, you need to be slightly cautious when people report sort of the presence of foreign fighters because for, for, for a lot of Afghans, they will say that, you know, Pakistanis who come in, you know, are foreign fighters and things like that. Um, and so you have to be, you be careful what you're talking about because, I mean, some, some will say that there's this sort of Al-Qaeda or foreign fighter presence where actually there isn't. Um, so, no, frankly, um, there's... Um, there's been one reflection with one group that we've had to follow up on, 
Um, but obviously I can't get into a huge amount of detail. We've had to follow up just on a couple of connections there. Um, but across the rest of the board, I mean, the, the, these are, you know, people of Afghanistan, of the communities who chances are a lot of them have been bruised into the insurgency in years past. And a lot of them have legitimate grievances against, you know, past poor acts of governance or predatory governance that has now been rectified and they feel it's right to come. Um, so these aren't, a lot of these people aren't, sophisticated, ideological people who would have ties to people like Al-Qaeda. All right, thank you. And Kevin? Hi again, sure. Uh, I wonder if you could say any, if there's any kind of connection between the, the um, higher level peace talks uh, effort that you mentioned earlier and this program. Um, you know, is one helping foster the other or not, or are they completely separated? And also, the the the, the people who are entering the program are laying down their arms, uh, what kind of resistance to that are you seeing being put up by uh, by the enemy fighters who don't want to come in? Are there, are there any kind of retaliated, retaliations being seen or intimidations to keep people from uh, uh, coming in? Um, yeah, well, let me deal with the second part first. Um, yes, in Mullah Omar's um, spring offensive statement, he made it quite clear that he considered the High Peace Council and people engaged in this process as legitimate targets, um, and then, you know, which, which I have to say did not go unnoticed across the people of Afghanistan in many areas, because you know they really feel that there is a sort of a, a, a genuine and sincere outreach for peace in Afghanistan, and um, they're, they're not getting a great deal back from the opposition in terms of reciprocation. Um, at the local level, um, there have been people killed in this program. We've um, had some people killed in Baghdad. We've recently had um, uh, a Talib leader who had reintegrated, killed up in Kunduz. Um, and, you know, it just brings home the fact that, um, you know, this is a serious process for a lot of these people. These are life-changing decisions they're making. This is not a glib, um, you know, let's enter a reintegration program and see what's in it for us sort of thing. Um, you know, a lot of these people are, are um, ultimately pretty bold and courageous to make these sort of decisions and come in, and they understand the threat they're under. And a lot of the work we do with the Afghan security forces to see, you know, how we can improve the security situation around these people such that they, you know, they feel that they can live in dignity and safety thereafter. And, um, and I'm sorry, I lost, what was the first part of the question? Uh, well, you answered it. It was about you know, tying it to the peace process or not, and how you, you answered oh, okay. it, as Mel said. But in what you just said, a uh, follow-up, you said, what kind of protection do you offer for these, uh, for the people come in? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a tough thing, and, you know, they, they get the same sort of protection as most other people. They get sort of the, um, you know, local police, the uniformed police, um, in certain places where the security situation has been really challenging. Um, you know, the QRFs uh, have been um, located, uh, quicker action forces, that is. And so, um, uh, you know, it's a combination of factors. Um, there are, in, in a situation like Afghanistan, there aren't necessarily, you know, perfect hermetically sealed security guarantees, but, you know, you well, have that, the security. That kind of sounds like there, you know, there's nothing additional at all. I mean, do they, do, do these, you know, where does the actual laying down of arms happen? Does it, does it happen within the walls of a, of a FOB or a COB or some sort of base or, um, is, is there any kind of point that where you know, these guys are somewhat shielded when they make this transition or allowed in, or is it really all in the open and, and they're they're taking that chance? Um, well, it's relevant to both. If some of these people have gone into safe houses, 
you know, if there's a real security issue and they need relocation, they go to safe houses. And that's actually been fairly rare. Most of these people have already made these decisions before they come to it. They've, they've made the decisions that they feel sufficiently safe and secure. The security bubble has reached out, um, and they feel sufficiently secure to go back to their communities um, without too many issues. Um, where groups feel feel they haven't been able to, they've been housed in safe houses for a while. Some, what, there was a group that sat in a safe house for four or five months before the government was able to find a solution for them. Um, elsewhere, security postures have adjusted, and in some cases have adjusted considerably to take care of this. Um, but it's, you know, that's, you know, that's the way it works. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Okay, that is the last question we'll have for today. And thank you all. We've had some great questions and comments today. As we need to wrap up today's call, I'd like to ask the general if he has any final comments for us. Um, I don't think so. Uh, no, I don't think I do. Okay, thank you, sir, for your time and efforts. Uh, today's program will be available online at dodlive.mil, where you'll be able to access story based on today's call, along with source documents such as this audio file and a print transcript. Again, thank you, Major General Jones and our blogger participants. This concludes today's event. Feel free to disconnect at this time.